welcome to the latest podcast from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. We're bringing you the latest updates and insights from the world of recruitment to help you navigate these challenging times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the REC's podcast, Talking Recruitment, where we uh, spend 20 to 25 minutes twice a week just uh, talking through some of the issues we're all facing as we navigate this COVID crisis. Another busy week uh, this week at the uh, at the REC. If you haven't caught up with this month's edition of Report on Jobs, that was published on, on Friday morning, the 5th of June. Uh, that's the latest data for uh, the middle of May. And what we see there is a slight recovery in the numbers from April, but still a very challenging position. Anecdotally, we we recognise that data. We also think we're hearing a little bit more about a labour market bounce back in the last couple of weeks. And we'll be looking at our uh, jobs recovery tracker, which is due out uh, next from the REC to look at uh, look and see whether those jobs postings have really picked up as the lockdown in England at least uh, has started to ease. On our last edition of the podcast, I was talking to our good friend and colleague Lorraine Larry about the the announcements that the Chancellor made on May the 29th. Do catch up with that if you uh, get a chance to. And one of the most important things about that is the uh, changes to things like the job retention scheme and other government support really coming to the point where businesses are going to have to be making some significant decisions about the future shape of their businesses and engaging with their staff and talking to them about that, which is why I am so delighted to be joined by our guest today, who is Nita Clark. As some of you will know Nita as the co-chair of the Engage for Success movement with David McLeod, which focuses on employee engagement. Others, you, you might know Nita through her role as director of the Involvement and Participation Association. These are both bodies that are about uh, less about what you do as a business and more about how you do it well and carry your people with you and help your people develop and grow. And what's important, I think, Nita, is that in tough times, that's even more important than it is in uh, in normal times. Yes. Now, firstly, thank you very much for asking me to do this. It's a it's a complete pleasure. I, I you know, always enjoy working uh, with you in the REC. You do a fantastic job and you know, never more so than over the past few months when, you know, your members have been affected in such diverse ways. I think in a sense, you know, Neil, my key message is when people look back on this, it's going to be a sort of what did you do in the war, daddy? In the sense that how organisations behave towards their staff, obviously towards their other stakeholders as well, but particularly towards their staff, I think it's going to have a very important bearing on how they are perceived and their success in the future. In other words, those organisations who, despite all the difficulties, try and use good practice to communicate with, to talk to, uh, to listen to, and to involve staff in the changes that are going to have to be made, even very, very difficult ones, and no one's in any doubt that that's what's coming for a lot of organisations. I think those uh, companies and organisations will get through better with their reputations, if not enhanced, certainly not in tatters. And that is going to matter because I think the post-COVID world is going to be very much more focused around values, uh, perhaps, than we have known for the past uh, few decades. I hope that makes sense. 
I think I recognise that. And, you know, there's reasonably good um, evidence from across businesses over many years that a lot of how people feel about their employer and about processes that they go through has less to do with uh, what they get out of the end of the process and more yeah. to do with how they're you know, how they feel that they have been treated so yeah it's quite fashionable in a certain part of uh of the hr community to kind of think about employee engagement and employee relations as the stuff you have to do so you can do the nice stuff the uh, the rest of the time around what you know what's your employee value proposition but actually the the real value proposition for employees is working for a company who they can trust and respect so there's a there's something here about you can be that company even when you're having making having to make decisions that you almost certainly don't want to make and your employees would like to avoid but the situation forces you to make them. Absolutely. I mean, the experience, you know, in the last 20 or so years is that you can make extremely difficult decisions, uh, including uh, making people redundant, but actually the people who leave the organisation, because you've done it in a way that's fair, that's respected people, that's involved people uh, through their trade unions, if, if, if you if you recognize them or through their staff council or, or however they've uh, they've um, engaged with staff, all the evidence is if you do it the right way, people leave still valuing the organization. And the key question is, you know, would you still recommend somebody uh, to work at X company, you know, despite the difficulties? The aim is to get people to say yes, because hopefully, of course, there will be an upturn. And, you know, who knows what the labor market is going to look like in two or three years time. You know, you want to be in a position where people want to either return or or your reputation is good enough so that people will come and work for you. And as I think, as I say, I think that one of the differences is going to be as we come out of all of this, that that kind of reputation, the reputational issue is going to be even stronger than it was before. And any organisation that makes the mistake of thinking, look, there's going to be such a sort of, um, you know, there's going to be such a glut of labour that it doesn't matter, we'll be able to pick and choose. I think it's making a fundamental mistake. I think that's a really interesting insight, Nita, because, I mean, we all know that uh, the country's facing some form of an unemployment crisis already, and it's likely to worsen it as we go into the third quarter of the year. And a lot of the work that the REC is doing at the moment, you know, this week we've been talking to the Treasury and DWP about well, how can we put the industry to work to really boost mm. the capacity of job centres and some of the charities and employability providers to smooth that curve as we've successfully smoothed another one uh, recently but the truth is that you know all, all that language that companies were using about employer brand before the uh, crisis started I think is absolutely right but we need to view brand as uh, more than just about the marketing speak I mean brand runs deep it runs to yeah. the purpose and the structure of organizations and I think that search for meaning that people have from work and search for alignment in terms of goals you know there's a reason that the REC we talk about making great work happen because it actually justifies almost everything that we do on behalf of the sector um, and I do think that that's going to run a lot deeper mm. in people's ask and even in an environment of high unemployment because 
um, what we've learned through this crisis is the necessity of protecting people. You know, everything that we've done has been about protecting people. And, and I think companies will will uh, be judged on that. If you think about all of that, what are the sort of good examples that you've seen through your work, Nita, about you know how companies can approach these really difficult issues where nobody wants to do what needs to be done, uh, but everyone wants to do it in the right way? You know that old yeah Yorkshire thing about being right with folk. Well, I think also, I'll come on to that, but I think what's also interesting is you've got to also take into account the fact that over the past few months, it has been a case of all hands to the pump, you know, and organisations have changed their ways of working and and, uh, uh, staff have bought into that and they've been innovative. I mean, just look at how some of the changes, for example, in how the hospitals have been organised. I mean, they've made changes in two months that would have taken 20 years before. So, I mean, I think there has been, on the one hand, there's a a kind of heightened expectation that people, um, they have felt involved, they have felt committed. We have all been in it together. And therefore, again, it's critically important that organisations understand that it's how they are going to approach the coming period that is actually going to determine, you know, what their reputation is going to be. I mean, there are several things that organisations need to think about. I mean, it's like not running into making plans without serious consideration of the impact on different stakeholders. It's about being able to talk to uh, employees realistically without offering false hope, nor without being a kind of, you know, a doleful Desmond about it. It's about being able to say, look, here are some of the options. Right, here are some of the things that we need to do to preserve the integrity or the viability or the profitability of the organization, depending on what sort of organization it is. And it's to have a finding ways of having dialogues with staff. Now, you know, given that people have been using Zoom and all of these social media interfaces, there's absolutely no reason, you know, why those shouldn't be used too. I think, you know, people aren't stupid. They know the shape of their organization, how strong or otherwise it was before the pandemic hit. They know what the impact of the pandemic has been on them on their market. You know, if you work in hospitality or whatever it is, but taking people into your confidence and exploring options with them, and finding you know finding ways of articulating what your values are in the process. So if, exactly as you say, if the value is, you know, we want to protect people, then go into that discussion with that as your kind as the bottom line. If your bottom line is actually, you know, oh, we we need to do something now to do returns to shareholders, well, that's going to make life a bit more difficult, isn't it? So I think articulating uh, the planning of what you are going to do, uh, placing it, you know, very firmly in a values framework, I think will help hugely. And because that's a dialogue I think that employees will want to enter into. So the story about how what you are planning uh, the options that you're planning to do, how that gets you through the coming period and out the other side. So that it's not a sort of knee-jerk reaction, but insofar as you can, you're thinking about taking the organisation through to the future and taking uh, employees in whatever shape you're going to end up with uh, along with you. And that involves, you know, trusting and communicating and being authentic and being open to suggestions. Because it is also true, isn't it? And history tells us that just because a board of um, an executive decides that X is the way forward, it's often quite a good idea to kind of actually throw that out there to employees and say, well, you know, 
what do you think? Are there any options here? So it's having this dialogue going, I think, is, is absolutely critical. And, you know, this is where, in my view, leaders of organisations, big and small, need to be really authentic and they need to they need to put the money where their mouth is in the sense of behaving in a way, you know, that really tries to take the organisation along with them. They need to think about, about this and not knee jerk. So when you think about all of that, Nita, there's a a real uh, story there about firstly treating your staff as uh, you know adults. Um, you know, people, uh, as a previous guest on the pod said, people have a really good sense for when they're being fibbed to about the motivations for something. So being really yeah. open, I think building on that, then being really clear about what the company needs to achieve and what the options are. Who's done this kind of stuff well? What's uh, what are the facets of the good examples you've seen? Organisations that have been prepared to open up. I mean, some who've been in in huge potential difficulty in the hospitality and other industries. You know, people like Whitbread have made really big efforts to, uh, you know, to help their staff, very varied staff they have of many nationalities, understand what's going on, you know, what they are trying to do, how they are trying to. Uh, you know, keep the business uh, going through to the other side. I, I mean, a lot of it has been, you know, really effective communications, you know, real uh, and not a kind of it's, you know, it's all going to be all right. It's a it's a communication that people because people aren't stupid. I mean, they know what's going on. They know the difficulties. And if they feel that you're trusting them and you're really uh, imparting information to them that that will help them come to a view, then I think that that then that sort of social contract at work, as it were, you know, gets renewed and strengthened. I mean, in a sense, Neil, it's not that different from what organisations needed to do before. Um, you know, and some were very good at it, and some were, um, you know, some were didn't think it mattered and just treated people like you know widgets and units of production. But um, you know, I think that from working with organisations through this time. You know, there have been some very good examples of, uh, of, of a kind of what you might call almost sort of horizontal leadership of people deciding, people at the top of organisations deciding that they really actually were going to use this opportunity, partly because they had to, but to do things differently. And that's also true of managers, too, not just of leaders. I mean, we've seen some really inspiring examples of line managers who've, you know, seized the opportunity of working with remote hybrid teams, some remote working, some not. You know, of making sure. I mean, it's really it's ironic. It's interesting because sometimes it's been the ability to do this. Um, you know, through um, through the media, through social media, with their teams, has almost released a, a sense of. Uh, some people have found that they're quite good at the, the personal stuff, but they find it easier to do via Zoom. I don't know why that is, but it's. You know, we've we've really seen some fantastic examples of of line managers really getting their teams into a into a good place. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, personally, I all of that learning from that doesn't just get doesn't get lost, even as we go through difficulties, because I think that, you know, I think that a lot of British management have actually shown their mettle through this and, and you know, have, have adapted well. Now, the proof of the pudding, of course, is going to be as we come out of it. Uh, you know, as the point where we're not all in it together, because by definition, some people are going to, you know, find themselves with the fuzzy end of the lollipop. 
Um, but uh, however, having, you know, having the courage to have those difficult conversations is really, you know, is, is going to be absolutely critical here because the alternative is that, uh, you know, you kind of throw an L-bomb into the middle of the organization. Everybody ends up dispirited. Everybody ends up, uh, you know, fearful. Everybody ends up, there's internal battles going on. Uh, who's been, you know, who's going to benefit, who's going to survive, who isn't. You absolutely can't afford to do that because that will just destroy the ethos and the morale. You know, the absolute priority now has got to be coming through the other side of this, you know, with as much intact uh, as you possibly can and making sure that people understand what is happening, why it's happening and what their role, what their role is going to be in it. Well, and how their role could change. I think you know, we talked a lot on, on various episodes of the podcast and we had Bev White from Harvey Nash and Jeremy McGrail from uh, the staffing group on a previous pod talking about this you know, we all know our businesses are going to change and there are going to be areas of the businesses where we're going to be ramping up resource because it's the direction of travel and areas of the business where we're going to be doing less so thinking about how we can support people in that transition is also important yes but you know just emphasizing the point you made of course, the people who are affected by any decisions you make in reaction to where we are now are not just the people who might uh, sadly leave the business or people who um, uh, who will uh, find a new place in terms of a growing part of the sector. They're also everyone else. It's yes. that whole point about you're always being obse- observed by the rest of the staff, mm. uh, those, those who are going to be survivors really important to bear that in mind as well isn't it absolutely because this is my point about not throwing a bomb into the middle of the organization because all you do is you create as it were you know at least two groups of people one who you've let go who are uh, furious angry and upset and others that you have saved who uh you know get a sense of bereavement you know because uh, you know, the, the organization has changed around them. Now, some people, of course, will think, God, thank God, I've still got a job. But the bad taste it will leave in the mouth. And as I say, the, the, it is also the case that the outside world is going to be watching here. You know, and uh, I mean, it may well be that we come out of this much swifter, you know, that we return to a, a sort of you know, a, a normality much swifter than people are anticipating. We don't know what the shape of the recovery is going to be, but it is the least possible that it's going to be a, a you, you know, a V-shape, in which case, three or four years from now, people are going to remember, you know, this is my point about what did you do in the war, Daddy? People are going to remember how they were treated by organisations. And I bet you in a year's time, there are lists, you know, of, of uh, good employers who behave well, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you know, the spotlight is not going to be off just because it's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, more unemployment does not mean that people are going to stop worrying about the quality and value offered by organisations. In fact, if anything, it's likely to become more because remember, you know, all those pressures on organisations that there were before the pandemic hit, you know, of people at work wanting meaning and value and to be treated with fairness and respect and to be listened to. All of those things haven't gone away. People aren't going to drop all of those requirements and needs just because of the effect of the pandemic. I mean, younger people, I, I, you know, I don't subscribe to the view that this is just younger people 
who want all of those things. I think everybody at work wants those things, but people who are older like me perhaps never quite had the courage to uh, to demand it. Um, you know, when when I was when I was a a young lass, you know, the boss said the boss said jump, and I said how high, and you ask my kids now, and they'll say, well, why? Give me a reason to jump. And I don't think any of that is going to go away. And any organization that thinks that people are going to be so desperate to have a job that they can behave in any way they want, I think they're going to be in for a very rude awakening. You know, as you look at that, I think there's a realization of that in lots of businesses now. And, you know, at least one big REC member who run, who run all of their decisions with staffing and uh, interaction with, for instance, the government schemes through the ba- on the basis of a no red face test, i.e. Oh. nothing that we decide now will leave us with a red face later. Yep. Um, and on the flip side of that, you saw kind of uh, certain uh, organisations in hospitality named and shamed for how they handled uh, oh, the onset of the crisis. Yes, absolutely. So that, that whole piece about uh, organisation will brand and its impact on the market. We know that social media and so forth has only heightened the uh, the ability for companies to lose it all quickly if they get things wrong. Yep. Um, having said that, I bet somewhere there's someone listening to this podcast going, yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean, absolutely, it's it's good to do things the right way, and it's that, and it's nice to be nice. But you know, ultimately, it's about the bottom line, isn't it? Setting you up to kind of think about how we can measure the positive impact of co- companies and set on com- yeah. for companies themselves on on doing things the right way. Well, all the evidence is you know, and has been for years, that organisations that behave better towards their staff, behave well towards their staff, provide better um, better customer service, are more pro- profitable, are more productive, all of those things. I mean, you know, I can recite the, 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 the text about why employee engagement uh, matters. Anybody but, you know, and maybe 20 years ago, you could get away with, you know, being that kind of employer. But honestly, the sense that uh, it's about being nice, it's not about being nice. It's about being effective. It's about creating the circumstances where your staff are productive, where they can commit to the organization, where they can bring of their best. If you create circumstances where basically people are only giving, I don't know, a half of themselves because they are resentful of the organization, they're angry about the way they've been treated, they don't feel listened to. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if your computers only worked a third of the time, you wouldn't be very happy about the productivity there. Well, if your employees, if only a third of your employees are engaged, well, that's a productivity question, isn't it? I mean, this like, look, I'm in favor of people being nice. But, uh, you know, but I'm perfectly prepared to argue why engagement matters from a shareholder return point of view. You know, and it's no accident, if you think about it, that people like the Financial Reporting Council and others are saying, listen, you know, um, boards of directors need to know how employees are feeling. Why are some of the big investment organizations now asking to look at staff survey results? Because they know that there's a very strong correlation between staff attitudes and the performance of the organization. You know, things, as I say, things are changing. 
um, you know, when we first did, David and I first started doing some of this employee engagement work, you know, 10 year, 10 or so years ago, I mean, it was a kind of thought of as a bit of a nice to do. But I think the link now between organizational performance uh, and employee attitudes and, uh, you know, it's just so strong. You, any organization that kind of feels that they can get away with, you know, behaving essentially like, you know, 19th century mill owners, I think they're going to be in for a terrible, terrible shock. I think it's more than just what, what that kind of not doing the right thing uh, piece as well. You know, we're we're recording this in the lee of events in the United States and the United Kingdom following the George Floyd case and the you know very legitimate and long-standing concerns that are being raised by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and you know when you watch how we as employers and as corporates react to that at the moment you get a, a sense that there's kind of two speeds and i do wonder whether on this piece around employee engagement the risk is less pe- people who look like 19th century mill owners and behave like 19th century mill owners uh, but rather people perhaps being willing to talk the talk but not walk the walk yeah no i, I take the point i mean there are dimensions to uh, employee engagement, which you know are, are more sort of sophisticated than simply the, the the way I was describing it before. The, the The difficulty for you know we've been doing a lot of work about around ethnic pay monitoring, and about certainly unconscious bias training uh, and so on. And you know the truth of the matter is organisations reflect the society as well, and it is. It is tough and hard for a lot of a lot of employing organisations to know how to deal with this. Now, some of the most effective things have been where you have um, self-developed, uh, for example, BAME networks. I mean, other minority groups uh, uh, too, of course. But but I think that you know it's a very interesting point you raise because I think one of the things that we've not been very good at, and I think probably the engagement movement hasn't really uh, embraced this sufficiently you know is 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 also is allowing or enabling people you know from different ethnic backgrounds also to have their voice at work uh, now that doesn't automatically mean that they have different needs or aspirations from uh, the plurality of the workforce but it does mean that if you believe that listening to people's own lived experience helps them then i think or helps them and helps you then i think maybe in organizations finding a way it's not just of as it were the top listening to the bottom but it's about sort of horizontal listening and enabling uh, maybe the majority population to understand why there is such anger and concern because if you work in an organization for example where there appears to be a reasonable spread of, of ethnic minorities, you may think to yourself, or the HR department may think, well, you know, our figures are not desperately unrepresentative. What's the problem? Well, quite often the problem is that although you may have a, a substantive uh, ethnic minority or a significant ethnic minority uh, population at work, my guess is that in most organizations, they are towards the bottom end of the organization. So when we've looked at ethnic minority pay reporting, it's been it, it's been absolutely apparent that in organisations that are trying to do something about this, the key issue for them 
is about promotion and development internally, because although they may have substantive numbers, as I say, of ethnic minority staff, they're concentrated towards the, the, the lower grades. Now, that in itself, uh, you know, is a uh, that needs unpicking in organizations. Now, how you do this can be uh, difficult, but it's, uh, you know, it's one of those dimensions that I think if, it's interesting you raise this because I think it's one of the dimensions if the pandemic hadn't hit that we would be moving on to discussing uh, far more. It is a complex issue, but I think at the heart of it lies uh, listening to people's lived experience and their lived experience at work. And again, being able to challenge sort of difficult things. Why are all our ethnic minority staff, you know, concentrated in the in the lower grades? What is going on with promotion? You know, what is going on with um, recruiting people into the higher grades uh, from outside? You, you know, these are complicated questions, but I hope that the impact of the pandemic is not going to mean that people stop thinking about them, because I think as you've raised it, it's really important. I think actually it's at least as possible it goes the other way in as much as the pandemic itself has been a massive shock to challenging how we do things around here and you talked about the importance of managers and some of the really good practice we're seeing uh, from managers who just feel a bit cut loose from the structures within which they've chafed uh, for, for years and a lot of a lot yes. of a lot of these kind of ways of doing things are you know, are not explicit or and are not pushed explicitly in organizations they are deemed to be uh, what is expected? I, I um, used to, uh, in my days as uh, CBI director of uh, employment, I used to have a nasty habit of agreeing to members of staff who wanted me to accompany them them to certain meetings, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. which always used to um, uh, discombobulate the CBI HR team, but uh, who are lovely people. But in those and other discussions that I've had over years in in, in HR processes, the most unengaging, the most the the least human discussions that I've come across are the ones where managers are acting because they think someone expects them to act that way. And so, you know, if there's one thing we've sort of come back around to at the beginning end of this is, you know, we're all human beings working within a structure to do the best we can. And we know that human beings with a bit of purpose and control and engagement will do their best for companies. So maybe, you know, if we start from the principle yeah. of putting a bit more humanity into all of this and not just accepting the culture that uh, as we have received it, that might be good for all of us. Uh, yeah, I think I, I'm sure you're right. And I think that ironically, that the pandemic has uh, given us the opportunity to do that. Because if you look at the, hum, you know, the humanity that has been displayed in terms of the care services and elsewhere, but also the humanity of people applauding and recognising, you know, the work that the people on the front line in local government and, and the police and other, you know, have been doing. I mean, I think, you know, humanity is back. Now, it's very precious. These these moments of we're all in it together have been very, very precious for us as a country. And as we come out of this, you know, we need to find a way of incorporating that sense of, uh, you know, of collective identity and, and of mutual support. And that's as important in society, but it's absolutely critical for organizations as they come out of this to keep that sense of, you know, of, of, of hope and integrity 
and of belief going. However difficult it's going to be, you know, I, I think that, that that's the key to success. Great place to say thank you for joining us uh, on the pod today. And that piece around shared uh, shared challenges, shared humanity, but also acknowledging that we don't all start in the same place is a great framing for businesses who are thinking about how to challenge uh, themselves. And, you know, our listeners are recruitment business owners, either in their own business or in advising clients on some of the tough stuff that they are having to do at the moment. Uh, some of these themes will come up time and again. So thank you very much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our chat. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it too. Good luck. Thank you all for joining us again on the REC podcast, Talking Recruitment. We'll be back soon with another episode. Uh, do check out the back catalogue. There's lots there on uh, government support schemes, on working with your bank, on running a, a recruitment business in times like these. Lots to uh, to dig into. And I'll uh, talk to you again on another episode of the REC podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode helpful. Head to our COVID-19 hub on www.rec.uk.com forward slash COVID-19 for the latest guidance on managing your business during these unprecedented times.